It is now my distinct honor to introduce the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, John Roberts, to administer the presidential oath to the next President of the United States, Joseph R. Biden. Please raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., do solemnly swear. I, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., do solemnly swear. That I will faithfully execute. That I will faithfully execute. The office of President of the United States. Office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability. Will, to the best of my ability. Preserve, protect, and defend. Preserve, protect, and defend. The Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States. So help you God. So help me God. Congratulations, Mr. Thank President. You. The third change we're going to make is we're going to fully activate the, pharmaceutical, the, the pharmacies across the country to get the vaccination into more arms as quickly as possible. Millions of Americans now turn to the local pharmacies every day for their medicines, flu shots, and much more. We're gonna immediately start new major efforts, working directly with both independent and chain pharmacies to get Americans vaccinated. We know that pharmacists can contribute to the efforts of, of administering immunizations where the scope of practice allows and promotes immunization in other ways that are accumulative to population health as pharmacists can lead in this as they have in their communities. My name is Todd Yuri. I'm the founder of the Pharmacy Podcast. And today is a special episode and we're gonna be digging into a paper that is titled Beyond COVID-19 life sciences reimagined. And what I'm excited about is the role that pharmacists plays as well as how pharmacy plays into this, even when, even when we're talking about technology and drug supply chain. You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. I would like to introduce to the Pharmacy Podcast Nation, hopefully not the last time that we have this special guest on with us to discuss this topic and beyond, Dr. Susan Garfield. She's a U.S. consulting principal in life sciences sector and commercial leader with Ernst & Young. Welcome to the Pharmacy Podcast. Todd, thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. So I really enjoyed reading this uh, paper that you helped to design and put out. And I want you to just, in your own words, kind of give our listeners um, an overview of this paper before I jump into some of our questions. Yeah, great. So EY collaborated with Reuters to try to understand what's coming next for the life sciences industry, pharmaceutical industry specifically. Um, if you think about all of the change that's going on right now, um, the change in healthcare delivery, the change in expectations by patients and providers, the emergence of more digital platforms to connect 
people, technology, information, care. Um, so so much is changing that it's 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 an interesting opportunity to pause and ask industry members where do you think this is all going. Um, and in the backdrop of all of that, as you pointed out, um, in this wild age of COVID, we have COVID vaccines about to emerge um, onto the scene. So at a time of incredible technological and scientific innovation, we also have change in business processes and in commercial transformation going on for most life sciences companies. So for your listeners, who many of which are probably on the front lines as pharmacists who are trying to understand what is my role in this changing environment. I think there's a, a bunch of tidbits in this report that will be relevant to, to you and your practices. And hopefully you can understand a little bit more about the industry that's behind a lot of the pharmaceuticals that um, you're helping uh, patients with to get better. The report is laid out in sections. I really like how it's broken down. And the first section is called commercial operations. And I jumped over that and went into the healthcare provider needs and relationships. And of course, I'm biased because I'm pharmacist number one fan. So I'm always thinking of the pharmacist in, in involvement. Pharmacists see their patients 10 times more than their primary care providers. And when I think of the answers that they're going to need to deliver to uh, give a sense of authority as well as lowering um, the worry that's out there in the public. Mental health is such a huge component of our health and we recognize mental health now more than ever. And we have a relationship with a, um, a podcast crew that focuses on just mental health, um, Dr. Monica Christian. And I was telling her about the opportunity to interview you. And the very first thing I thought of was the technologies used to engage with patients or and or the community in a remote setting. So I wanna kind of open this up with that question. Which technologies do you believe will be leveraged the most um, for a healthcare provider engagement? Yeah, it's an interesting point you make about pharmacists having such a greater connectivity to patients than than, than most clinicians in terms of, um, I, I can resonate that out of my own experience, how many times I've asked my pharmacist really important questions about my own care, my family's care. And, um, I, you know, I think when, when we look at technology and where it's going, the care paradigm for patients. So what COVID has done is it's accelerated the use of telehealth. You can now call into your provider, you can go on video on Zoom and, and have a lot of your questions answered. Some things we still need to go in person and that's gonna persist over time, but I think it's really accelerated the adoption of, of telehealth. So what is the life sciences industry's role in that? So, so helping clinicians get comfortable with these new technologies, um, helping with educational resources that sit in between the patient and the clinician, um, really working to accelerate the adoption of, of technology when it makes sense to improve the experience of care, the quality of care, the connectivity between patient provider, <clears throat> excuse me, and therapeutic. So I think uh, the, the technologies that are emerging in, in, in kind of this um, new normal or the next normal um, following the, the COVID pandemic, I think you're going to see a lot more connected providers um, 
platforms for patients to engage a, a whole variety of providers, and I think including pharmacists. Um, so the ability to ask a question, get a meaningful answer. Um, the other thing that, that we're starting to learn from this pandemic is that care doesn't have to be local. Um, and I think the pharmaceutical industry is starting to understand that in a really fundamental way that you can create resources that don't have to sit right next to the patient, that don't have to sit right next to the provider. Um, so creating kind of resource pools, on-demand um, technologies and, and connectivity between either specialists or specialized information or, or particular experiences, I think you're going to see much more of that as well. You know, 305... 305,000 people who passed away um, because of this pandemic. It's a, it's awful to think about because that's how many pharmacists there are in the United States. So that, that kind of feels personal to me because that that's the, that's the audience that I've built and that I, I serve. And I think of, you know, the families that have been affected about this and it's, it's the holiday season. So that's, uh, that actually compounds those feelings. But there's good that's come of this. There's camaraderie. There's unity. Um, there's a sense of uh, purpose that's been reestablished with many of pharmacists that I've talked with, that they realize how important that they actually are, even in the community space where they feel they're putting out 300, 600, 1200 prescriptions a day, and they're 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 burnt out. But there's this reinvigoration in in many of them that I've talked with, and when I think of um, you know, how we need to use data to make the right decisions moving forward. I think of my own sales and business development experience with uh, cu customer relationship management platforms and how um, now today it's much different. And I think the need for data in decision-making, uh, clinical trials, drug development, all of this is coming to a head, and I think the CRM system is is going to be quite important. There are some listeners right now um, who may who might never have used a CRM system, and really, what it is is it's a way to track information in a repetitive nature, so you're not having to recreate from the ground up proven processes, proven um, proposal documentation, templates. Um, the way that you reach out to a department, there may be several people in the department. You're able to label each person with a specific case or a specific uh, title so that you know where to go to forward the project. So many of the CRM systems today used by medical science liaisons are so generic in, in kind of stature and the way that they've been built out that they're not specific enough to a healthcare provider's need of getting that information out. So, you know, more than 40% admit that their CRM system data cannot support their comprehensive healthcare provider engagement. And what I want to know just from this report, what you've discovered, where do we go in that next gen CRM system? Um, what's, your, what's your opinions and insights on that? Yeah, if you think about what we need CRM systems to do, right, they're really relationship management, customer management systems. And what does that mean? Functionally, what are we trying to do? We're trying to track connectivity, understand what's having the most impact and, and where we should direct resources moving forward. 
Um, part of that is to evaluate the impact of what we're doing. If, if we're having a conversation with a clinician, does that result in, in, um, in a script being written? Are we responding to the specific questions do, do, that they have? Do we have the right materials to educate, inform, and connect? That's all true, but I think the CRM of the future really um, can act a little bit more sophisticatedly to, to, to connect the different stakeholders on a more on-demand basis. So multi-channel engagement is very, very different than the traditional sales representative-driven engagement model, right? So that one-to-one -one relationship-driven approach is, is very effective, but I think moving forward, we're gonna see with more use of multi-channel engagement, the CRMs needing to measure the differential impact of different channels, really trying to understand what clinicians, whether they're um, physicians, nurses, pharmacists, others, what they want and how are we meeting their needs, right? So what we're talking to a lot of life sciences companies about, and I think the data from this report show, is that the transformation that's happening is, is, is kind of two-pronged. One is a shift to being much more customer-centric and customer-driven. And the second is how do you leverage technology in the age of an increasingly digital engagement to support that customer-centric approach? Um, and, and technology alone won't solve the problem. You really need a change in philosophy of what you're trying to do and what you're trying to achieve, ultimately all in service of, of the patient and a better patient experience and outcome. So, that's what we're seeing. I think the CRM is, 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 is kind of on the front line of some of that transformation as we're looking at these systems and saying, well, wait a minute, they, they, were, they were built to measure a very different thing. They were built to measure reach and frequency. They were built to measure how many docs you saw in a day or, or you know, did, you, did you get to talk about that visual aid? Um, and I think moving forward, you're gonna see them evolve to, to really facilitating a, a much more dynamic engagement model, a much more um, bi-directional um, uh, engagement and approach and, and, and helping um, with things like next, next best action and other ways to kind of proactively consider what's next. I was surprised by that section of the report that your team had the insights to mention the importance and dig down into the customer relationship management system. And there's an excerpt that I wanna read that says the challenge is not just technological, getting previously discrete functions and roles to work together to make the customer experience coherent where, where whenever they consume content will also require an assessment of internal roles and more cross team collaboration. And Susan, that's what you just got done saying because it's not just, we're not talking about the advancement of the platform because the technology is here and ready. It's the organization of information so that we know to save time and processes and bad projects gone awry, that we're keeping everything documented so that we can learn from that documentation, move forward, make changes and engage the right team member um, for the exact information that we're searching for to turn around and to use that information to communicate better with our physicians and with our specialists and with our pharmacists. So I was really glad to see that that uh, that 
that you guys dug into that, that it really made sense to me as someone who's used these systems. Yeah, thank, thank you for that, Todd. It, it's interesting. I'm a behavioral economist by training. So I believe very strongly that you have to look at what's going to actually influence people's behavior. What are the incentives to change? How are you measuring it all? And how can you communicate back, right? You have to create very open feedback loops. And, and one of the things that um, I think we're starting to see, you know, 2020 has been a year like no other for many reasons, but, but, but from a business standpoint, we've had the opportunity to try a lot of new things. There's been an, an enormous amount of pilots and, and evaluation of, well, maybe we'll try this and in this region or th among these customer sets and, and all of that um, trialing and, and proof of value and proof of concept I think is starting to instill a bit more agility in how people think about planning and engagement. Um, and, and so the need to not always deploy the biggest, best solution first, but to start thinking about what are some smaller questions I can ask and answer? What is the proof that I can get to build that next bit of the, the, the puzzle and, 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 and kind of build and move forward from that? And, and I mentioned that in the context of your question, because to do that right, you also need to account for the people, the capabilities and the operating model that are gonna sit underneath any innovation or new approach to, to make it work over the long haul and, and make sure that it's appropriately embedded into the organization um, uh, to, to make it work. So I, I think you're right in calling that out as, as kind of a critical success factor. Absolutely, thank you. So. There's buzzwords in the in every industry. I was I came from telecommunications, so um, I heard my share of buzzwords. And when I entered healthcare in the institutional pharmacy space, specifically building uh, custom um, open database source platforms, and this would have been in 2004, where all databases were shut shut down. They were closed down. They locked down specific to the characters that. Um, the character-based systems that we're using them. But when I think of today and the access to information, I, I still come back to buzzwords that are overused. One of them, what's the meaning of patient engagement? And you know, what's that mean? And I try to uh, simplify it by saying it's really, for lack of a, another term, it's communications. It's the ability to communicate um, succinctly, simply, so that you can get your messaging out and this report jumped all over the patient engagement aspect and really did it the right way, which was expressing the issue up front. And the issue was the impact of this global lockdown and the severe restrictions to healthcare access has resulted in leaving patients struggling to address so many conditions and some of those chronic, which is very dangerous. So. When I think of the digital age, there's no longer an option for these healthcare entities and healthcare providers to not be involved in some capacity with digital engagement, especially when we're relying on telehealth and, and telecounseling to engage and move forward with specific conditions. And those with serious chronic conditions, opioid epidemic with uh, you know opioid usage disorder and diabetes and in hypertension and, and mood disorders and mental disorders. What did this report reveal to you from a patient engagement perspective? And I have two questions. Number one, what are we doing right? 
And number two, what are we doing wrong and how can we improve? Maybe that's three questions. <laughs> well, it's a good three questions. I, I, you know, I think we always have to put patience at the center of everything we do. And, um, you know, engagement, I think far too often we think of engagement as the way we push information out to patients. Um, I, I think we really have to have to consider it the other way. And what, what do patients need? How can how can we understand their needs better and make sure the resources are available to them when they need it, where they need it, in a format that that resonates? Um, the, the companies that are doing this bit best are creating the greatest connectivity um, with their patient customers. I think they're also leveraging the ecosystem that sits around patients. Um, so when we think about clinicians and nurses and, and, and our dear pharmacists, these are all really important stakeholders in a patient's care continuum and experience of, of treating or managing their disease. And for, for chronic illness, it, it, it becomes even more important, right? Because it's not something that needs to be addressed at a moment in time. It's really the partners throughout a patient's life course that enable them to, to have the best outcomes. Uh, so the engagement model of the future, I think, it, or it's not even of the future. I think it's it's you know starting starting now, um, is multidimensional. It, it it doesn't think about what do I have to say and how can I figure out the best way for you to hear it, um, but more how can I use technology to meet you where you are, figure out what you need, and and my products and solutions probably fit within that need. Um, but I'm gonna make sure I understand I understand your needs first. I think the second part of um, patient engagement that's really exciting um, and starts to, to follow up on, on, on that um, innovation cycle I was talking about before is we're seeing more and more collaborations uh, in the life sciences and health field with uh, pharmaceutical companies and healthcare providers and technology organizations coming together uh, to swarm patients and patient groups and therapeutic areas and, and really try to transform the care model in a way that um, I think is, is, is pretty, pretty amazing. And so over the next few years, I think you're going to see a lot of change, especially in chronic disease management. And I don't think that change is going to be coming from one, one group. I think you're going to see constellations of um, companies working together to drive that type of change. So one of the overlooked healthcare providers uh, that are out there, it's more of a behind the scenes. Many have become friends of mine is the, is the medical science liaison, that communications point, whether that's a physician or a pharmacist or a nurse practitioner who has gone the, the road of the business side of our industry and really communicating with physicians, um, healthcare stakeholders, um, pharma, and I think they're an extremely important part of the life cycle of healthcare. How do you think the role of the MSL will accelerate new drug developments in the age of that concierge medicine that we know that's out there? Based on DNA testing, one of my favorite subjects to talk about is pharmacogenomics. <laughs> Um, you and me both. So I think, you know, pharmacogenomics, the, the role of genetic testing, the role of advanced analytics is all a way that, that the practice of medicine is, is evolving. And it's a great example of, of the complexity of the science behind routine care, right? To really 
grasp the nuances of pharmacogenomics and some of the new diagnostics and personalized medicine treatments, um, you have to have a scientific background. You have to have a pharmacy background in many cases. And so our MSLs are critical, critical bridges between the end user, the clinician, and, and the science um, uh, on, the, on the organizational industry side. And I always think of them as, as, as our industry's best translators. So it's not that they just have the scientific chops to understand the papers and be able to, to bring the, the, the science to the community. I think the MSL is, is, is so important because they can translate the so what of the science and the so what of the clinical information um, so that so that doctors and pharmacists and, and, and other clinical stakeholders can really be armed with the information they need to make decisions in the real world. The real world's super complicated. Patients are super complicated. Many of them are comorbid. Many of them have access challenges. Many of them um, are, might come in with speaking a different language. So there's, there's, there's so many different layers to the complexity of delivering high quality care in the real world. Um, that our MSLs, I think, are, are, are just unsung heroes and, and resources um, that, uh, as you point out, uh, and I think their role is going to increase in importance. So, so if you look at, at what therapeutics are, are in the pipeline right now, um, overarchingly, we're seeing um, a, a rise in specialty pharmaceuticals, highly targeted therapies, um, hugely complex um, mechanisms of action, um, combination therapies, cell and gene therapies, which are fascinating and exciting. But, but all of that complexity requires um, a, a customer engagement model that's probably increasingly science-based versus relationship-based alone. And I think the MSL will, will be an important part of that, um, and if not a, a growing part of the, the commercial and customer engagement team for pharma. Well, that's that's good to hear, and and I like the fact that the report kind of dug into the medical affairs and research and development component of healthcare and drug development, and that makes sense because I think the um, the medical science liaison is beyond communication at this point. They're going to be bringing information back to the companies that they're representing, including the pharma manufacturers, to make changes to um, what's been heard in the field. And what's been heard with um, distributing uh, customers, those distributing customers are the physicians and the mm -hmm. feedback that you're getting from the pharmacist ongoing as treatment continues. And, you know, just as you've mentioned specialty, there are specialty medications that things are happening within the treatment that you may have to change an entire modality based on how the patient's reacting to that medication versus uh, you know, efficacy of another patient. So that's exciting for you, for me to hear you say that. This shifts us back to COVID-19. Do you think you'll see a difference in the three organizations that are coming up with this vaccine, Pfizer first? Do you think there, there will be multiple vaccines available based on the three manufacturers who are involved because of the differences in makeup, in people, in, in how we're absorbing and using that that uh, vaccine. Yeah, I think we are so incredibly lucky uh, that 
nine, 10 months later, uh, we, it looks like we're going to not have one successful vaccine. We're going to have multiple. And that's, that wasn't clear several months ago. And that's, that's really unprecedented, not only the rate of innovation, but um, the efficacy we're seeing out of, out of the early vaccines. And it looks like the ones that are coming a little bit after are going to be quite efficacious as well. And the safety pro profiles look good. So we're, we're, we're looking at a scenario that is, is, is overwhelmingly positive. What we don't know yet, because it's early on, we have emergency youth, youth authorization. Um, so there's still a lot to learn about the vaccines um, in terms of the um, their implications of use in subpopulations, et cetera. And as that data and information comes in, um, we'll probably learn over time which vaccines are, are best for which subpopulations, if there are any nuances or interactivity with other drugs or, 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 or people with pre-existing conditions. But as of now, uh, the vaccines are showing themselves to be you know, very, very safe, very well tolerated and extraordinarily effective, which is you know, more than any of us could hope for. Now, on the front lines, uh, the pharmacists, the vaccine administration, administrators, the public health professionals who are going to be interacting with patients, there's going to be a lot of questions. Um, so, you know, I think most people aren't really going to understand that there's several different vaccines available that have slightly different attributes or different mechanisms of action. That's, you know, that's for us in the industry and as professionals to really chew on and understand. I think for, for people, they just want to know, is it safe and effective? And I think we're going to have to figure out on the front lines um, very, very clear messaging about what vaccine you're getting, um, what, what, what's its efficacy, what's its safety profile, and be prepared um, for people to have different stories being told, right? You know, so I might, I might get one vaccine and you might be down the road um, with another one. You might be my husband and get a different one. Um, so I think, I think there's going to be a lot of variability in how this rolls out in people's experience. And we just need to prepare for that with really, really good public health education, um, employer engagement, and, and helping their employees understand vaccination, overcoming vaccine hesitancy issues, um, and, and really leveraging the trusted relationships that already exist between patient and provider, patient and pharmacist, patient and, um, and, and community, community group to, to, to really help with those vaccine safety and efficacy messages. There is so much distrust in our, our communities, in our world, because of the temperament of bad politics and, and news that's leveraged for um, changing people's minds on on different attributes or a candidate that's running for a presidency or whatever it is. I mean, we've over-politicized so much that we forgot in much of this uh, disaster time that we faced, unprecedented, we forgot the people in it. We forgot the the humans. Um, you know, when, when there's arguments on Facebook uh, and my my dad jumps in almost every time for uh, political um, uh, wrestling matches. I always, you know, reference, you know, what's this mean? What's the outcome? What What's the end game to this? And from a vaccine perspective, the trust is so needed now more than ever. So when I look at um, our communities and I look at the physicians overwhelmed and I look at our nurses overwhelmed, I look at that pharmacist who's also uh, pretty tired right now as a frontline 
uh, provider, I, I think of um, this is an opportunity to heal, not only heal because of the vaccine um, in, in combating this, um, this horrible pandemic, but it's time to heal as a nation and, and healthcare providers can lead in healing as a nation and in moving forward and, and being together and caring about each other. Um, not always looking what's in it for me. And um, this research had an element through it the entire time I read of unity. And I was very uh, impressed with that unity that I see that AstraZeneca and Merck and Sandoz and uh, Vive Healthcare and Janssen and Atsuka, uh, who's one of our clients on the, on the pharmacy podcast with their mental health uh, community, uh, Psych U. And I'm so impressed. So I think that this is a, a, an opportunity for pharmacists to take what has been taught and add to it. And my final question and last question for you, Susan, is in knowing what you know and the research that you've done, what opportunities do you see um, in, the, in the healthcare marketplace right now uh, for pharmacists that may not be traditional roles? Yeah, I think um, I think your point about unity is really critical, and 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 stepping back to to the implications from from COVID, we've we've heard over the last many many months people say we're all in it together, we're all in the same boat, and and I don't think that's true. I think we're all in the same storm, and people are in very very different boats. Yeah, and I think what we what this pandemic has highlight has highlighted in the persistent social inequities and social determinants of health is that we have a long way to go and that people's life circumstances have a tremendous impact on their health outcomes, their experience and access to healthcare um, and the role that technology and innovation can potentially play in making that better. So moving forward, I think we all have an opportunity to think about how do we make sure all those boats are working and seaworthy and have the necessary emergency gear for when the big waves come and that the boats can talk to each other and are connected. And, and our, our pharmacy community, our clinical community, our life sciences community is all responsible for that. So moving forward, I think we, we all need to kind of take more of a public health perspective that recognizes the interconnectivity and our collective responsibility um, in, in improving things. And we're already starting to see that um, as we roll out COVID vaccines and some of the community responses to date. But it, it's, it's an incredibly exciting opportunity. Um, and, and I think many of your listeners are going to be huge change agents. Um, and, and I'm so grateful for the work that they're doing every day and, and will continue to do as this unfolds. Absolutely. We have a series called Transforming the Nation, and it's about um, pharmacists combating racism and health disparities and sexual harassment and standing up for our um, for all that, that need healthcare, every, every, every class, if you want to put them in that, you know, separate boat and, and you're absolutely right. I don't think we are in the same boat. I think different people have different, um, different barriers to getting the healthcare that they need and being delivered with empathy and understanding that what you're going through is your experience, um, as a, as a community, as a, as a patient, as, 
as someone that's that's experiencing something very different. I think it's been a a, a treat and a and an, and an honor to have this opportunity to interview you, uh, Dr. Garfield. And um, I want to thank you and the coordinators and the project managers and also um, EY and in. in having this paper uh, developed and uh, want to extend an invitation to you and your teams that if there's ever any content that you'd like to get out to pharmacists, we would love to help you do that in, in, in pushing out as much of the content in audio form or interview form as possible. But I just want to say thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been delightful to talk to you and, and, and thanks for everyone who's, who's out there listening. Absolutely. You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Nation. We were with Dr. Susan Garfield, and we will have Beyond COVID-19 Life Sciences Reimagined. We will have a link to accessing this paper in the show notes. And as always, I thank you for listening to the Pharmacy Podcast.